absolutely harmless. The only thing they do is they might poop on your hand, <laughs> bugs poop, <laughs> and uh, they actually poop something called frass, which is really neat. You're listening to The Sue Podcast with your host, Brian Keeney. This is the place to hear from members of the Sault Ste. Marie community and beyond. We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories and experiences. Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on the Sioux Podcast. Hi, I'm Tracy from the Sioux Podcast. In this episode 9, Ryan interviews Chris Lee from the Atomica Insectarium right here in Sault Ste. Marie. Since you're listening to an audio version of this episode, we wanted to let you know that the video version on YouTube has some exciting visuals of the creatures at the Insectarium, along with an exclusive tour that Chris presented just for the Sioux Podcast. Whether you experience this episode on audio only or on video, we hope you enjoyed learning about wildlife as much as we did. Welcome back, everybody. We're excited to introduce our guest for today, Chris Lee. Chris is the director and curator of Entomica Insectarium in Sault Ste. Marie. Ever since childhood, Chris has been captivated by the natural world with a particular fascination for insects. Chris is now fortunate enough to work with these amazing creatures on a daily basis. Before finding his true passion in etymology, Chris worked in a diverse range of fields, such as tool and dye manufacturing, oil field work, construction, firearms range safety, and landfill transfer. In April 2022, after returning to school and graduating from the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Technician Program at Sioux College, Chris was hired by John Didis, who is a biologist and the president of Entomica. That's where Chris began working in insect production at the GLFC. Now, in the role of director and curator of live collections at Entomica Insectarium, Chris is able to pursue his love for insects and share his knowledge of other fascinating and exotic organisms with others. Chris firmly believes that understanding and appreciating the natural world is crucial for our planet's future and is proud to be a part of that effort. Join Chris on this thrilling adventure as we explore the incredible world of insects, learn about the amazing diversity of life on our planet, and discover the beauty and complexity of our natural world together. Chris, I want to start off by saying this. The other day when Tracy and I came to visit the Insectarium for the first time, I had never been there before. I want to say that probably most locals in the Sioux have at least heard of the Entomica Insectarium. Maybe some of our viewers have been there, some of them haven't. So I had never gone. Tracy and I went to visit and the experience was like nothing like what I was expecting in a very positive way. And I want to make that clear Awesome. because <laughs> I'm someone who, for example, and I'm going to delve into a few different examples, but when I went to this facility and you were showing me, well, you showed me a lot of the different creatures that were there, but there was one point where you were showing me these just enormous cockroach species. It was a type of species that like does this little like hissing sound and stuff. I made a comment to you when I was there, but I'm saying this on the podcast now. Me personally, I have spent my life deathly afraid of cockroaches. I could just imagine I'm like, oh my God, if I was in the same room as one, I'd be like, my skin would be crawling. I'd want to vomit. I was just like, Bleh. but what I was totally pleasantly surprised by was as I was standing there just a couple of feet away from these creatures. And as you were manipulating them in your hand, I was surprisingly calm. I was like, okay, this is okay. I think I can do this. I wouldn't want to touch them. I didn't have that kind of bravery yet. But I was just amazed at how calm I felt through the whole experience and how much fun I was having in a situation that before that would probably terrify me. Yeah, you were being brave. You were doing great while you were in there. Thank you. <laughs> so tell us about the Insectarium and your work there. So Entomica Insectarium, located here in Sault Ste. Marie, it's 
actually one of the smallest science centers in all of Canada and now registered as a natural history museum through the CMA and the OMA, so the Canadian Museum Association, as well as Ontario's. And what we do there is we show off the hidden, fascinating, often misunderstood world of insects and now things like amphibians, reptiles, and we even have some bird species there to show off. Often misunderstood world. I like the way you put that because I felt like I had misunderstood that world before I took that little one hour visit. Most of us do. Like you were saying about the cockroaches that we had experienced in the laboratory there, the Madagascan hissing cockroach. A lot of people associate these things with pests or dirty conditions. So these are species I was explaining to you there. They're going to be decomposers in the forests, the tropical rainforests around the world, and they do us a benefit or a service to help clean up those forests. Right. Have you ever had the pleasure of going out to see these creatures in their natural habitats? When you talk about how some of these creatures perform a very, well, I imagine most of them, if not all, perform a very fundamental, important function for their ecosystem that they're in. Have you been able to go out there and see them in action doing this sort of thing? Now, none of the species really that I deal with at Entomica are going to be found in North America or Canada especially. Okay. So I've never been able to go out. I haven't really traveled that much, but I've never been able to experience these types of insects around the world in their natural environment. Only through Entomica have I had those experiences and learned so much about these types of species. But I do go out on my own time and I do collect insects and I do observe our own backyard here in Ontario and around the country actually. I've been to New Brunswick, British Columbia, Quebec and yeah, I'm always on the search for cool insects that are out in the environment. Sort of like, I know funny, but Pokemon, so I've got to catch them all, right? <laughs> what was the coolest Canadian-based creature, insect that you've encountered during your travels to, you mentioned New Brunswick. So actually, the coolest arachnid I have found is probably like the yellow garden spiders that are all across Canada, okay. Ontario to New Brunswick anyways. I've found them in both provinces. Coolest beetles I find would have to be carrion beetles or burying beetles, as well as tiger beetles. So commonly the six-spotted tiger beetle. They're around the area. They're very vibrantly colored or an emerald green, iridescent elytra on them with their six white dots so very colorful and then there's lots of beautiful butterfly species or lepidopteran species that we have here in Ontario such as the luna moth or the monarch we can't forget about that or the painted ladies yeah. there's lots of beautiful species of insect right here in Ontario if you're local to the Sioux and you've maybe like yourself not had the opportunity to go out into like some exotic rainforest somewhere and travel to some other corner of the world Really, the insectarium sounds like the one place in the Sioux where you could ever get the opportunity to see such exotic wildlife. Oh, absolutely it is. And uh, I mean, certainly it's one of a kind in Ontario. Yeah. We're only one of four insectariums in all of Canada that are able to house and acquire these types of insect species. So it's very unique, especially in the north in Algoma County. It's a very unique opportunity for anyone to interact with these types of species. And even if you go on a vacation somewhere, you might not venture off the resort that you're staying at and be able to experience these large types of insects. Nobody really goes around poking around in South America yeah. for tarantulas anyways, <laughs> right? So. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. When you were showing me the tarantula, by that point I'd worked my way up. I'd been a couple of feet away from those hissing cockroaches by that point. I'd seen some of the different creatures that you had shown me. 
So by the time the, and I think you even started off with like a really tiny tarantula, the size of maybe a loony. Yeah, warm you up a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Way up <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we worked our way up to like the really big one that was like the size of, I don't know, close to my hand. And I was like, okay, like, I think I can do this, but I, I didn't last that long. <laughs> so those ones I was showing you are, are actually, those are new world species of tarantula. So they come from South America and the Caribbean regions. Okay. I showed you at first that little tiny blue one, which is known as an Antilles pink toe tarantula. That's just a little baby at this point in its life, or a spiderling, they're called. And it will actually change quite drastically in color. So it's going to go from this blue to an orange as it sheds and molts its skin. And then when it becomes a full adult into its maturity, it's going to have a red abdomen, a green prosoma or cephalothorax with blue and red striped legs and pink toes. They're quite colorful as an adult. The larger tarantula I had shown you, her name is actually Birdie, and she gets her name because she's a salmon pink bird-eating species. So we named her bird-eating. We named her Birdie, yeah, because she's a bird-eater species, <laughs> and uh, we don't ever gotcha. feed her birds at Entomica. Gotcha. But in the wild, they for sure could take down little birds, amphibians, and reptiles, little mammals even like rats and mice, and certainly larger spiders that they come across. So yeah, just taking one look at Birdie, I could absolutely see birdie taking down a bird or a rat or other mammalian creature. Oh, yeah. She's a very strong creature, yeah. for sure. Yeah. The other one that you were telling me about, the blue-colored one, the smaller one, you said it was around kind of like a baby tarantula at this point. That was the one that constructed a little cave sort of thing that had a little hatch that opened up, or is that a different one? That's a different species. So that really, really small one I had shown you was called a Brazilian jewel tarantula. Oh, okay. And it's a unique dwarf species, so it doesn't get very large, only about the size of a toonie in leg diameter. Oh, wow. Maybe a little larger than that, but they're unique because they live up in a tree, so they're an arboreal species as well. They're also a trapdoor species. So they use little parts of debris and silken thread that they use to make a little trapdoor, and they would live high in a tree and catch prey that way through a trapdoor. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw you, like, sort of manipulating the door, and, like, I was able to get my camera in there and sort of look at the inside of that living space. Of a, oh, it's magic when you can yeah. get her to come out, and then yeah. she goes back right in for people. It's <laughs> yeah. uh, like a National Geographic moment. <laughs> yeah. you know, so. It was so cool. And you have this separate room which at the moment you walk in, you feel that you're stepping into a rainforest. And maybe I'm hyperbolizing a little bit, but the room has a different humidity. It's a very warm temperature. You've got fans going over the places, a little bit of a breeze. Like I was just like, whoa, right? Like it was very different than the atmosphere in the front reception area when you walk into this space oh so for sure it has to be that way for all the livestock that we have in our colonies and uh, think about this like all of these insects are coming from around the world in tropical regions equatorial regions and they're going to need warmer climate raised humidity especially at certain times in the day so the laboratory that i took you into there that smaller area is a little branch extension off of our showroom and all of the insects that we have on display in each of those live vivariums out front in our display area, they receive every morning a couple of each of the species from the back laboratory into their display tanks. And then at the end of each day, we take those insects back into that more humid and temperature-increased environment that's the laboratory. Oh. And that's where they're stored in their colonies, where you had seen all of that leaf matter all the totes of substrate or soil, yep. and then all of the tarantulas that I keep back in that central section. Yeah, I noticed there were these little 
plastic containers. And each one was a little colony for a separate species. Yeah, so depending yeah. on what the type of insect is I'm storing, I'll either keep them in a larger enclosure with a vase with some foliage in there that they eat, and yeah. those would be like stick or leaf insect species. But for something like a tarantula, they don't need much space. They don't require much space to thrive. So they would naturally live in a little hole most times or up in a tree in an area. They build a silken little hammock almost. And then things like beetles, they're going to be burrowing. I provide them food, so not much area they need. And as well, some of the baby beetles or grubs, I just provide them substrate to a certain depth. That's all they require to live their life cycles. Gotcha. A lot of people in our audience are probably thinking the same thing. They're probably wondering the same thing, which is at what point in your life did you realize that your reaction to these creatures was somewhat, maybe not somewhat, actually significantly different from most people, where most people get jumpy or they get scared or they get put off or get that thing a mile away from me, right? That's how most people are reacting to things like tarantulas and cockroaches. You showed me this creature that looked like it had like a thousand legs. Most people, there's this instinctive reaction to pull away. So my curiosity, and I imagine that many of our audience has the same curiosity, at what point in your life did you learn your gut feeling towards these creatures is not that, it's actually an affinity towards them? Well, from a very young age, I guess it's the way I was brought up, actually. I grew up in a place called Georgetown, Ontario, on a farm. So I had access to a pond and things like that, and fields, lots of trees around. So I was always out exploring, collecting things, and I just am fascinated with this type of stuff, like the natural environment, anything to do with nature, all organisms, really, my niches, insects. But at a young age, I was out collecting things. My brother and I, who's he's a little bit younger than I am, but we were always out collecting frogs or snakes and different insects and beetles that we found that were cool. And then I got into more preserving and creating collections for myself. But at this point in my life earlier, I was doing it improperly. So it wasn't until around maybe three or four years ago that I had started at Sioux College for Fish and Wildlife, and then I had learned the proper techniques and sort of learned more about pinning and preserving insects. And then through Entomica now, I mean, it's my life. This is what I do all the time. But like I said, from a young age, I really enjoyed it. It's very strange because both my parents, they're not keen on insects. Like they're not like I am the way I'll just grab things or pick things up to look at them closer. My mom's a little more apt to warm up to an insect. My father, unfortunately, insects are off the chart for him. And I was brought up that way, seeing him be afraid of these insects. But I was the kid that would go out and capture a bunch of orb spiders that I found in the garden and put them in a Tupperware and bring them into my bedroom. And then my father would yell at me to get them out of the house, right? So I grew up, honestly, I don't know how I began to love them so much. It's just a fascination and an interest that I have within that I've always had and I've always explored and kind of built on from that. So It was just sort of like in your DNA. I suppose it's sort of though, like you were mentioning, people are afraid of spiders, especially, or things like millipedes. Now, these stem from phobias. So like for me, through, I guess, my experiences, and now I know that there's nothing so wrong with these insects. They're not going to hurt me. They do things out of a defensive nature, not an aggressive nature. So they don't seek us out to hurt us. Yeah. But when they do feel threatened or they're put in these positions, then they defend themselves. Yeah. So I know that. And it's similar to like somebody who's afraid of the dark. Yeah. There's nothing in the dark that's going to hurt you, like the dark itself. 
And it's just what's the unknown of it all. So same with arachnophobia. People, the unknown, they think the spider's going to bite them immediately. They think it wants to jump on them and bite them. They think tarantulas can spin a web, a lot of people. And things like tarantulas being able to shed an exoskeleton or molt a skin. People are unbeknownst or unaware of this for most of their lives just because they stray away from that topic. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, one of the really fascinating things that I learned during the tour that you were giving us at the insectarium actually wasn't regarding an insect at all. It was one of the frog species. I forget which one. It was yellow in color, I believe, and it was near the end of the tour. And you were mentioning that this frog's skin is extremely poisonous. So if you were to rub an arrowhead on it, like you'd have a poison arrow. And you were explaining how it's not actually the frog itself that produces the poison. The frog is consuming some sort of food or creature or smaller insect creature that has a poison in it. And then that becomes a part of the frog's body. And then if a predator were to eat the frog, then the predator gets poisoned. And then that's how that works. So it's like there's this relationship that's moving up the food chain in how that all works. Now, again, I know that I didn't do nearly as good of a job explaining it as you would. So I'll let you explain it to our viewers. But hopefully that's enough information to identify the creature that I'm talking about. By the sounds of it, I did a good job that day because you went over that pretty <laughs> yeah. well. So, and, and yeah, how that happens is the frog you were talking about is actually called a golden poison dart frog. Okay. And this is a frog from Central America into South America. And now this species is utilized with its toxins to, yes, rub on the tip of arrows to hunt for tribal members. And they'll hunt things like primate, which this toxin would be very effective at killing a primate species and they would be able to utilize this kill for food source now the frog doesn't create its own toxins like you were saying and how it does this is it would typically eat a beetle that this beetle is eating a toxic plant so this toxin in the plant gets bioaccumulated up into the beetle and then into that poison golden dart frog and that's how when we touch it or if we eat it we would die from ingestion or absorption from that toxin on its skin. But in captivity, it doesn't actually have this toxin because we're not giving it that beetle or that plant that that beetle is eating. So we're feeding things like crickets, mealworms, fruit flies, spruce budworms, because I have access to things like that, as well as cabbage looper and spruce budworm moth. So those things are not toxic. There's no toxins within those creatures. And when the frog eats them, they still have all these colors. I'll talk about that a little bit here, but they're not toxic any longer. So there's a lot of creatures that actually utilize these colors, and they're not toxic at all. And this is something called aposematism. So this is a form of mimicry in the animal world, which would represent a distasteful animal or a toxic animal through color. So these frogs sometimes are utilizing that, like the red-eyed tree frogs that I showed you guys. They're not toxic at all, even in their natural environment, but they are very colorful and they use that to mimic a toxic creature. Wow. Hi everyone, it's me, Tracy again. We hope you've been enjoying this episode. If you're a content creator, real estate agent, or really just about anybody who embraces the power of great content, then I encourage you to visit TracyAlberta.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y. 
and albertalikethepromise.com. On my website, you can learn about my and Ryan's editing services, film production, aerial photography, and much more. Okay, back to the episode. Yeah, you know, like, obviously, most of us are taught in grade school that the ecosystem is a highly intertwined, interconnected thing, right? The relationship between plant to beetle to frog to whatever predator just got poisoned by eating the frog. Like, we kind of know that from our textbooks at school, but I feel like it's just totally different to go out to a place, see this creature at a museum, or even better, out in the wild. But from your explanation, actually, it sounds like it could be a lot more dangerous in the wild. Certainly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But actually to go and see that, and it's not in a textbook, it's not in a classroom, it's real. So I guess maybe it's more so as we get older, we get so disconnected from that sort of like childlike awe of nature and wildlife. We're just sort of focused on our jobs and our bills that we have to pay and like the daily grind and all that stuff that we don't often get to go out and experience the world or like the interesting things that the natural world has to offer that we just don't get to see while we're sitting at home or sitting in our cars or whatever, right? We've sort of evolved that way with our work lifestyles and what we do nowadays. A lot of people repress nature and the environment just because they're so busy and caught up with everything. But a lot of people don't want to go out like that. Like they're afraid of the insects because they're unaware the benefit of all these insects that are in the environment, but they won't go say camping because they don't want mosquitoes. I'm one of those Um, people. (laughs) Right. And then I've even heard from people, why would I go camping? I work all week. I pay rent. Why would I go out and sit in a tent for a while? For some people, it's very enjoyable. It sort of helps you reconnect with the environment because you're out enjoying it you're learning and seeing things firsthand and you're getting some fresh air at the same time so it's nice and uh, if you really do have the passion towards it and you take that everywhere you go with you I'm constantly looking up information on different species that I have new species that I can learn about or obtain even just because of where I am now but It's like a lifelong thing that you either carry with you or you don't really enjoy it as much when you get into your older years, I don't think. Actually, on the topic of retaining that childlike awe, one of the creatures you were showing us, you said anyone who has seen the Harry Potter movies would immediately recognize that particular creature. I don't remember anything other than the visual image of it in my mind. But beyond that, I think it's better that you explain that to the audience than me try to fumble around and try to explain that. Yeah, okay. So that creature is actually called an ambly pigeon or a tailless whip scorpion okay. or whip spider, people call them. Now, this is an arachnid species, and there's different arachnids. So there's spiders, tarantulas, we have ticks, we have ambly pigeons, we have euro pigeons, which are tailed whip scorpions, which are actually able to shoot acetic acid from the tip of their a hair-like appendage tail or whip-like tail as a defense against predators. Now, the one that we were playing with was a tailless whip scorpion from the Harry Potter franchise. Now, this is a creature that has very, very poor eyesight. Those little whip side-like tails or like their modified legs, I should say, they use them sort of like a blind man would use a cane to feel around. And that's how they find their prey because they don't have such good eyesight. Now, this is an arachnid as well that doesn't have any venom glands. They do have fangs, but they're able to tear things apart with those fangs. So if they catch a cricket, they're going to gather it up with their modified front pedipalps, which are like almost like a mantis's arm, so they can gather and grasp onto things. And then they would use those fangs to tear it up and chew it, almost like a crab with little mandibles or mouth parts that they have. So, oh, wow. That's pretty incredible. 
Now, it's a harmless creature. Like I said, they don't have any venom glands, and uh, they look very menacing, and it's a very hard for a lot of people to overcome and hold a creature like this. Uh, but like I said, they're harmless. They yeah. Can't, they can't do anything. So You were holding it in your hand just fine. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Like I was telling you guys that day, if I were to drop that guy off the floor, because they live in caves around the world, they're able to press their body right up against a flat surface. They're able to hug that cave wall so that they're protected against predation from other insects or things like bats. And if I were to drop him onto the floor, he would actually press himself down so tightly, I would have to get my pocket knife or a butter knife, for instance, and kind of wedge it under him to lift him back up. And wow. Down. Yeah, they're like very thin as a piece of paper. Yeah, and very fragile. So I wouldn't be able to pick him up with my fingers. It would actually injure him. Oh, wow. Holy smokes. And you said they were fast, too. Like, you'd probably just lose them on the ground. Very fast. And then I worry about injury with them because once those modified feelers are injured, they're unable to find food because of their poor vision. Yeah. And it would actually starve to death. So Right, right, right. Gotcha. I forget if it was directly before. I'm going to call it the Harry Potter bug because yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. You said it was interacted. Yeah, no so worries. anyway, yeah, I, I don't know if it was directly before the Harry Potter bug or directly after the Harry Potter bug. You brought up this other very, very long and very, like, thick millipede type creature. I forget the proper name of it, but you even had some of the guests at the insectarium run their fingers along the legs because it was just like, I didn't do it. I was just like, very ah. neat sensation. Yeah. 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 Tell us more about that creature. Okay. So these millipedes that I was showing off that day, this was a giant Malaysian millipede species, but at Antomica, we actually have a giant African millipedes, the giant Malaysian, as well as I have some giant North American millipedes which aren't so giant. They're only around four or five inches long, similar in color to the Malaysian species, but just a lot smaller, right? Now, millipedes are very, very harmless. They don't bite. They don't sting. Some of the species are known to secrete a toxin or a noxious chemical that would deter predators from ingesting them or trying to eat them up. So some of the species that we have there, such as the giant African and giant Malaysian, they do excrete this toxin onto your hands. And what it does is it would be very distasteful if a predator were to get them and try and eat them. They would spit them out immediately. Now, I've never tried this. I've never put it in my mouth to taste it, but it does smell very chemical-like. It smells sort of like a shoe polish to me. And from my understanding, it's a mixture of several different chemicals in some of the species including some of them are able to secrete a hydrogen cyanide, which would cause a burning sensation to the predator. But the ones we have there are absolutely harmless. The only thing they do is they might poop on your hand, which <laughs> bugs poop. And they actually poop something called frass, which is really neat. But they would excrete this liquid on your hand, and it would cause a hyperpigmentation or a staining to your skin. So what happens is when you make them feel at threat, or like they don't like what you're doing if you're handling them too roughly, they'll actually secrete this liquid onto your hand and it's a pure yellow color. And then if you go and wash it off or if you let it sit there for too long, I don't know if it's oxidizing, but it definitely changes color. It goes from a yellow to a purple and it stains your hands for several days. Oh, wow. And I mean like four or five days. <laughs> and I've tried using everything, soap, rubbing alcohol, even acetone, and like nail polish removers, and nothing gets it off, so just have to continue to wash your hands but that would be a perfect deterrent to a predator if one of them tried to eat a millipede so yeah. millipedes naturally they're covered in a hard exoskeleton they sort of resemble a roly-poly limousine if you want to call it that but they have a hardened exoskeleton made up of many segments 
And how you would actually be able to tell how many legs a millipede has is if you were to count those segments on its body and times it by four, you're going to be able to tell how many legs it has because each of those segments has uh, two pairs or four legs. Now, centipedes, they're the ones we don't want to play with. These okay. are predatory insects or myriapods. And these guys can bite us and give us a very painful bite. So they use that venom, a centipede, to hunt other insects, and they would use that venom to inject it. It paralyzes the prey, and an enzyme would break it down, which then they could suck that juice up, just like a spider does. A lot of people ask me as well for things like tarantulas and millipedes and all that. Can you take the venom gland out of them or the fangs out of them? And those animals would actually starve to death because they require that to digest their food. So, for instance, tarantulas, they're going to inject a venom that's going to paralyze the prey or the cricket or cockroach from getting away. Then there's an enzyme in this venom that would break the tissue of that insect down inside the exoskeleton, which then the spider can use its rostrum. So spiders or tarantulas don't have chewing mouth parts like we do. Mm. They have a straw-like mouth appendage called a rostrum, and they pierce that insect or a liquid bag they've made and suck it up like a milkshake. So Holy smokes. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, so people ask all the time, can we remove fangs or venom? And you can't do that to most of these insects because they would starve to death. It would be like taking our stomach acid right out and yeah. we wouldn't be able to digest our food. So Right. I was watching this video on, I think it was TikTok. I want to say it was probably TikTok, where there was like this very rare scorpion venom comes out of their tail stinger of the scorpion in these laboratories, they'll grab them with these long metal tools and they'll sort of get little droplets of that toxin out of the stinger. And apparently these fluids have enormous medical applications, very, very valuable medical applications to the point where if you could just get like a gallon of this stuff, it would be worth over $20 million. But in order to get a gallon of that kind of toxin. Well, that's a lot of milking of scorpions. Yeah, exactly. Like you'd have to have thousands and thousands and thousands of these things and you'd have to have a lot of people working over a long period of time to even get that. But it boggles my mind. It floors me that for all of our advanced technology and of all of our modern science, we still rely upon naturally occurring chemical substances that come straight from living creatures that have properties that are so rare and valuable and sophisticated that we somehow have yet to replicate with all of our advanced chemical engineering science that we have. Oh, so yeah, bioscience, there's a lot behind it, and it's very beneficial, and a lot of it's unknown. So I don't know much about that scorpion application with their venom being beneficial. I don't know much about that. I can't really speak on it. But I know there's lots of things out there that are beneficial, and we just don't know about them yet. Lots of the different tarantulas have beneficial properties to their venom that they utilize. Some, it's not so significant, but some are a little more medically significant. And some, actually, they have a more potent venom that they utilize to stop prey. And that actually affects us in a beneficial way, if applied correctly. So, Yeah. You know, Chris, talking to you about the insectorium today and learning about these creatures and seeing them in a different light. I got to say, like, it just makes me feel really proud of what the community is doing here in the Sioux in terms of not-for-profit initiatives, in terms of creating spaces that can amaze and delight the local population. People need that. Going out and enjoying your community isn't just going out to a restaurant for dinner, going to a theater and watching a movie. People crave, I think, 
a variety of diverse experiences and they want to be able to say, this is right here in my community and I can go do this. And if I have friends or family visiting from out of town, I want to take them and show them something like this, right? So you guys have created something really cool and really special. And I guess my question in all of that is, what does the future hold for Antomica? Like what are the plans in the pipeline for where you see this going, where you and the other members of the board see this going? In my opinion, the future of Antomica looks very bright. We are expanding exponentially, even over the last year. We've grown our collection of livestock and colonies double in the last year, as well as we've made many partnerships with people in the community, as our cultural corridor, the art gallery, the public library, the old stone house in Ermitinger, and as well as the Bush Plain, the Canadian Heritage Bush Plain Centre, we're located within and without them being a partner with us, we'd be limited to so much more things and we wouldn't be able to do so much for the community, I don't believe so. For the future, we hope to have things like a butterfly house in town here, which there were talks in the past about, but you know with politics, things change and we'll just have to keep our ears open for that in the future. For Intomica, though, we do lots of outreach and we're expanding continually with our programming. Right now we've done things with Science Up First, which was our COVID-19 initiative that we had done with the community. We're also doing things such as presentations with the public and the Huron District Catholic School Board. So we're doing invasive species presentations in collaboration with the Invasive Species Center here in town. And we're doing things like flight presentations regarding insect flight. We're also doing insect arts and culture, so how they relate to arts and culture. We even talk about things that are kind of neat, like entomophagy, which is the practice of eating insects and really 80% of the world or most of us we're actually utilizing insects in our diet on a daily basis but here in North America we're kind of far behind on that so we're just starting to see now a utilization of entomophagy or crickets into our diet so things like cricket meal which would be like a cricket meal blended with flour and you can make things like cookies and cakes and muffins to incorporate that high protein insect diet. It's funny you say that because not too long ago, I saw this video pop up on my social media because I see a lot of like travel content and stuff. And I've also posted a lot about my travels in different places in the world. Sometimes I see this on my For You page, you know, exotic foods from other countries. And I saw a video that's very relevant to what you just told me, where people will basically purchase, I guess what we would call just street food. You know, we're not talking about restaurants. We're not talking about fast food diet. It's like literally street food as you're walking down these rural streets in places in Asia and South Asia and stuff like that. And you've got these food vendors who have these enormous platters of insect-based meals. And when I think about it, I'm like, well, let's get over that initial North American reaction of like, oh, well, like that's not food or like, oh, I can't imagine myself eating that or like, oh, that's gross. Like, let's get over that initial feeling and reason it out. And I'm like, okay, this has to be an excellent source of protein. You know, like that's one thing. Hey, I've heard a tarantula actually tastes like stone crab. I've never tried it myself, but yeah, I've seen videos like that too, where they burn all the urticating hairs or all those nasty hairs that the tarantula has on it that would hurt your mouth if you were trying to eat it. Uh, and then they dip it in a tempura batter and deep fry it. It's supposed to taste just like stone crab. So. so there you go. So to those who are eating that delicacy, they seem to enjoy the taste of it. It seems like it would be an excellent source of protein. And we all know how expensive it is to get enough protein in your diet these days in a North American diet. And the other thing that struck me as really genius about that type of diet 
is how extraordinarily sustainable it is. Because imagine the incredible rate that these little creatures can be bred and be well, mass produced. Mass and, produced. And, that's the word I'm looking for. Yes, mass produced. And they're going to take, well, I don't know the exact percentile ranges between this, but uh, I believe it's like they take 80% less feed and water than, say, cattle, pigs, chickens, things like that. Space wise, they don't require much. You can do it indoors in facilities. So, actually, the largest entomophagous company here in Ontario is called Aspire Foods, and they're located in London, but they produce, I believe, around a million kilograms of crickets per year. So they would be manufacturing that cricket meal I was talking about, as well as other potentially dried insects flavored with different, like um, one might be a cheddar, one might yeah. be like a habanero. <laughs> and that's really neat. I've even taken little samples like that. They come in a test tube yeah. and uh, it's a flavored cricket that you can take along and eat with you with high in protein. And they're kind of crunchy and taste good, but I've taken them along to schools when we go to presentations for the arts and culture and uh, the kids love doing that. They love trying the crickets, so <laughs> it's really neat. And even the teachers, they get in on it. They're like, oh, yeah. I'll try it. Yeah. But their kids usually have to tell them, like, come yeah. on, do it. Yeah, yeah. So, And then they have this cricket, and they're like, oh, my God, it's so delicious. And it's not so bad. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. crunchy. has almost yeah. like a sunflower seed taste to it, so yeah. not bad at all. I would totally do that if given the opportunity. That actually sounds like a new strange but oddly fun experience that I would try at least once. I'll say it that way. <laughs> and why wouldn't you try it, right? There's <laughs> nothing wrong. At like 80% of the world, like I said, utilizes insects in their diet. So yep. for us to think icky, that's just in our culture, right? Yeah. And so you have like a very typical North American response to something like that. Yeah, certainly it is. Yeah. Chris, actually the reason that I even discovered that the Antomica insectarium even exists and that like the literally... Probably the first time that I heard about it was when Tracy and I went to the Sault Ste. Marie Chamber of Commerce Business Awards Night. That was quite recent. It was sometime within the last few weeks. It was a really fun night. I understand that this is the Chamber of Commerce's like biggest event of the year. It was at the, I think it was at the machine shop or in that building somewhere. So we had a lot of fun and we were sitting in the audience watching these award recipients and not only, as far as I can remember, not only did Entomica win an award that night, you guys actually won two awards that night. <laughs> Very proud moment, yes. Yeah, tell us more about that. <laughs> so the awards that we had achieved that night for the Chamber of Commerce was the Community Investment Award for Sault Ste. Marie, as well as a Nonprofit Business of the Year Award in Sault Ste. Marie as well. And like I said, very proud moment. We have so many people to thank from those awards that we had achieved over the year 2022. And like there were so many partners that worked with us over 2022, everybody in the cultural corridor, all the way down from the library, the art gallery, the stone house, Bush Plain, and so many other people in the community helped us achieve those awards. And it was also brought together with the help of so many volunteers and gracious people that give to Entomica. So it was really, really awesome. And that was a wonderful night. And winning two of the awards was, yeah, honestly shocking. I did have a little speech written up just in case, because you never know when you go to an award. But I was very, very shocked that we had won two awards that night for the Chamber of Commerce. And I was more than pleased, obviously. So Yeah. And I actually didn't know that the Insectarium is a not-for-profit. And I had more questions about that. Like, where would the funding come from for something like that? And how does it survive? 
Right. So uh, for us, uh, being a not-for-profit, we definitely have grants and funding that we take advantage of. So things like the Northern Ontario Heritage Fund Corporation, they help us fund a lot of our positions for permanent employees, as well as the Ontario Trillium Foundation. And then other things that we're working on, like the Tourism Development Fund. And then as well, we have Canada Summer Jobs. And right now, actually, we're hiring for two positions for the Canada Summer Jobs for students over the summer. And one of our positions as well for a full-time program coordinator and outreach coordinator. So very exciting stuff. But how we get that funding, yeah, like I said, is mostly through funding. We do charge an entrance fee now in this past year of 2023. At the front door of Bush Plain, when you come in, you can either choose to go to Bush Plain itself, in Tomica itself, or you can choose a combo package and come to both of them for a set price. Just to come visit in Tomica, I believe it's $9 to come in and enjoy all the collections that we have there. So, yeah, really, really cool. Totally worth it. Yeah. When Tracy and I went to the Insectarian and we paid for our tickets for the two of us, it was about 20 bucks. In terms of the value of the experience we received, I was like, yeah, I probably would have paid more <laughs> for that. Well, hey, I try to make sure everybody's getting a good experience and they're at least leaving with a smile on their face and maybe yeah. learning a thing or two about these things that we have there on yeah. display. So, Yeah, definitely a very fair price. Chris, we've been talking a lot about Entomica's accomplishments in the community, winning these awards and the outlook for the organization. I imagine that's something our viewers have really enjoyed hearing about, but I also imagine that many of our viewers probably want to get to know you a little bit better. Who is Chris Lee? What is your story? How did you get through all those different arcs and turns in your life that ultimately led you here? I know I'm curious about that, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. My story and how I am where I am now, well, like I said, I have the passion for insects and natural environment. But I have not always worked in this type of work or in this field, actually. I'm a little older now, so I'm 35 years old. I have not always lived in Sault Ste. Marie, and I've not always been so involved with insects, especially in my life. Now, in the past, I graduated from Georgian College in Barrie for tool and dye manufacturing. Basically, I had pursued that path of being a tool and dye manufacturing technician, and I worked at a company out of Midland, Ontario, that focused on automation assemblies. So I did some really cool work with them, but at the same time, I was still going out on my off time and collecting insects and doing all the stuff I love to do with the outdoors. Once I got into that apprenticeship position with MRT Automation, and basically they started me off on the right foot, and I thought I was loving it, but Eventually, I realized that I wasn't happy standing in front of a conventional mill manufacturing parts and uh, making little pieces that would go on to an automated assembly. So I ended up going out to Alberta, working in the oil field. I saw my friends that were traveling out there, and I decided I wanted to go make some money. Now, here's a perfect example of the money doesn't always make you happy kind of thing. Because I can tell you right now, I was making amazing money while I was working out in Alberta. But I just wasn't happy at doing what I was doing. I got to spend lots of time outside, but I would always work very long hours. I was always sore, and it's just not what I really wanted to do with my passions. So basically, I had moved back to Ontario after spending just over a year and a half in Alberta. And then when I got back to Ontario, because of my construction background, I got into doing utility installation, so underground utility installation, and working on solar farms up in northern Ontario, Berks Falls and Huntsville region. And then once I had done that, I became a member of the 493 local for the laborers union in Sudbury. And then I had moved down southern Ontario to Barrie. I was working out of the 183 local for the laborers union. So I actually worked for a company out of Scarborough. 
They're called Guild Electric, so they were installing the high-mass poles in the center of the 401 and doing other electrical installations. And after, I actually did a contract with them, and then I became employed with a company called Target Sports Canada, which is a shooting range that's located out of Stouffville or Gormley, Ontario. And that's because I have a background or a passion for firearms as well. So not only do I love insects, I'm also very passionate about firearms and target shooting. And I'm not much of a hunter. I mean, I've tried a couple times in the past, but I'm not very lucky with hunting. So I don't do it very often. But I do have a very strong passion for firearms. And working as a range safety officer there at Target Sports, I got to have access to all these different times where I would go out shooting with my friends, try all these different cool firearms. And I really got into some experiences that I wouldn't have had elsewhere other than working for a company as such. Once the, I left Target Sports, I actually left this company. I had a pretty tragic incident happen while I was working on range. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on air or sure. on your podcast. Yeah, I don't want people to take this the wrong way or think like, oh, poor guy or things like that about me. But when I was uh, taking somebody out on range, there was a tragic incident where this fellow was injured by the firearm and he unfortunately passed away. And this affected me actually in a negative way, taking people onto the range with uh, live firearms in action. So I had thought about leaving this company. They said, don't leave, blah, 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 we'll help you. You can still work uh, selling firearms, doing transfers with the RCMP and all that good stuff and working on the retail side of things. So after I did that for a while, I was seeking other employment at this point and I became employed with the Simcoe County Landfills. So like I said, none of that there in this whole time I've worked was with insects. But while I was working at the landfill, it gave me a perfect opportunity because I was outdoors all the time. I was collecting insects that I would find in the nice area I was of Tosserantio Township in Ontario, in the Simcoe County. And basically, I had worked there until I was laid off at the beginning of COVID when I realized I want to go back to school for something that I really love. So I had moved. I had two choices that I applied to, which was Lindsay or Sault Ste. Marie. I chose to come to Sault Ste. Marie to go to Sioux College for Fish and Wildlife Conservation. And hey, I'm glad I did because I've loved every moment of moving up here. Sioux is a wonderful place. The Sioux College is so amazing and they've taught me so much. I can't even express how much opportunity I felt I've had here in Sault Ste. Marie working for the Great Lakes Forestry Center, other student positions in the insect production, and then becoming the director curator of Entomic Insectarium here in the Sioux that's located in Bush Plain Heritage Center. So, You know, Chris, it sounds like from everything you've told me about your work at the insectarium and taking care of these creatures and everything you told me in the last few moments about your story and the sort of like arc of your life, it seems to me that you are a very naturally empathetic person, right? And you would need that quality in the line of work that you currently do. You're showing an incredible amount of concern and attention to the needs of these creatures. Are they in an environment that is comfortable for them? Is the temperature correct? Are they being able to access the diet that they normally access and that kind of thing? Well, with the exception of that frog, because we don't want them eating those beetles. You're sort of like when you were talking about that little Harry Potter bug, you're talking about if I were to drop this creature by accident, it would be very difficult to take them up off the floor and I'd be concerned about injury. There is this level of empathy, and I'm mindful of the fact that we also talked about insects as a food source and all creatures need to eat. That's a separate thing. But overall, in terms of like when you're in a position of 
holding these creatures in captivity, you're expending a tremendous amount of personal energy in tending to their needs, right? And I think about this, as you've told it to me, in the context of what it must have felt like for you when that terrible accident happened. And of course, accidents happen. Accidents can happen if you're just driving in a car down the street. The way that it must have affected you regarding that individual who passed away in the shooting accident, you know, we're talking about a person who inherently has so much empathy that you're pouring it into these creatures, albeit later on in your career. But the empathy was there. The care for the preservation of life was there. So other people who work in an inherently dangerous environment, whether it's at a shooting range or in a law enforcement career or military career or anywhere that dangerous weapons are being used, they might encounter a situation where someone passes away due to some sort of accident. And they might react with more detachment, you know, but not you, right? Like something about that stirred something in you where I think, and again, I'm not going to sit here like an armchair psychologist and analyze you, but like, it just seems to me that something about that sort of was like the first domino in your journey to discover this extraordinary empathetic part of yourself, which eventually led you to a line of work where you get to express that empathy into the lives of these very vulnerable creatures. Now, that might have triggered a domino effect in my life. I mean, I couldn't, for the most part, tell that it was affecting me negatively other than I had a major weight gain when it happened. So subconsciously, there was something that I was traumatized over, obviously the incident, and uh, I had gained a lot of weight. And actually, at that point, I started to have some back pains. So I decided I needed to start dieting and exercising a little more frequently. But there was nothing I could have done about that. It was something inside me that I was dealing with that made me put on this weight due to internal stress. But afterwards, I think, yeah, each person would be affected differently from that. And from that incident, actually, some of the other people that were involved, I know they didn't handle it as best as I did, right? And it's to each person how they're going to overcome each issue they have in life or each obstacle. So something like that, I felt, did affect me, but I still am passionate about firearms. I actually just got my Algoma Rod and Gun Club membership. Nice. start on June 3rd. So Nice. I'll go Marauding and Gun Club. Thank you for that. And so I'm still very passionate about target shooting and firearm sports. I've even done IPSC shooting in the past, which is just a more tactical way of shooting in scenario-based situations. But yeah, I still, even after I've overcome that situation, I still am very in love with shooting sports. And I was able to move on from that and then, yeah, better my life for what I really am passionate and love doing. Now, I know you were speaking on the empathy of all these insects and things like that, or the care of them. Now, these are all living things, and I understand that quite well. So I'm not there to take care of them. And I am sort of not playing God, but I'm giving them the necessity to live and thrive. And all I want is success out of it all, because it makes for our education better when we have more insects, more colonies, and healthy stock too. I'm able to tell people about what I'm feeding them. Now, like you said, sometimes you'll have to find out what the right food source is for each one. Now, a lot of the insects come from different regions where I don't have access to these plants or we're unable to import this species of plant that they naturally eat. So I'll have to find a substitute. So for instance, a lot of the stick insects are able to eat oak leaves, raspberry leaves, salal, which is a species of greenery that grows on the west coast of North America. And eucalyptus, a lot of the species that come from Australasia, they're going to appreciate some eucalyptus in their diet. So 
And there's so many different species of each one of the plants. I don't know how many, but there's lots and lots of species of eucalyptus. And each stick insect species will favor one or the other. It's funny, you made that comment about how you went through these different working experiences where you really got to experience for yourself that sort of principle, that life principle that money doesn't always guarantee happiness. Now, granted, money can provide a certain level of relief from discomfort, but does it necessarily truly provide you with genuine, authentic passion and happiness in your life? And I was actually, the funny thing is I wanted to mention that in this podcast at some point, because it was actually a thought that was going through my mind when I was at the insectarium. I was literally like, while I was visiting and having such a great time here, it's not in the heart of some big city where you have to get on like a wait list and pay like $80 a ticket to show up to see this really premium exclusive place. It's a small town, sort of like humble experience, but at the same time, a really, really, really incredible experience. World class. World class. Yeah. Where it's like, you don't have to go to downtown New York city. You don't have to go to LA. You don't have to go to Toronto. Like you're in a small community where you're getting this, as you say, world-class experience. And as I was there, I was like, huh, this is a place where both the people that work here and the community who like to visit here are all deriving an enormous amount of joy and fascination and happiness from this little space. And it's not a space that you would associate with like really expensive luxury lifestyle. And that to me was like such a wonderful feeling, you know, and it was such a reminder of the whole, you don't need riches to feel excited and passionate about something. And I was thinking about that while I was at the Insectorium. I was thinking about it as you were making that comment during the episode. And I wanted to voice that. So, yeah. Yeah, like you said, it makes things a little more comfortable. Not always better, right? Yeah. Chris, you're also telling me, and I wanted to get this into the episode before I forget, during the pre-show discussions that we were having, you were talking to me about a very recently launched YouTube channel that you just created. Tell us about that. Okay. So it's actually, the channel's called The Insect Advocate. And I just recently started this, just making shorts and a little bit of videos here and there and posting them on YouTube for others to enjoy. So uh, check that out, The Insect Advocate, and that's me, guys. All right, sounds good. The Insect Advocate, I will definitely check that out. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I just had so much fun at The Insectarium. And for anyone who hasn't been there, they've been able to get a little sneak peek from some of the video footage that we've included in this episode, and I hope that they go check it out. I hope that this presence in the community grows. I think it's really good for tourism. I think it's good for bringing families together and learning about nature and just stepping outside of their homes and seeing something cool. I was not expecting to have as much fun as I did, and I had a lot of fun, and that's something I'm really, really grateful for, and I'm grateful that you came out and shared your knowledge with us as well and educated our audience about some of the stuff that I definitely didn't know. I want everybody, while they're there, to enjoy it. Not be afraid. Take the time while you're there to actually learn a little something about these creatures and organisms that we're displaying. And I know not everybody enjoys it as much as I do. I'm a bug nut, right? I want everyone to love the bugs as much as I do, but I understand and I'm compassionate. If you don't and you want to just come in, some people just want to look. Some people just want to come in and have a little tour around by themselves and just look at things. Other people want to jump in right there and get those bugs and I'll help with anything that I can. Last thing I'll add is I think your passion for it rubs off on other people. Now that I'm thinking about it. Honestly, it is. Once you have somebody explaining to you that they know what they're talking about, you feel more comfortable. You're in the zone. You get a better understanding of it. And you start to think to yourself, oh, this guy's holding it. Well, I can do it. What I do as well, 
I want to just explain to everybody. Sure. This is a little bit of a trick that I have. So if I notice somebody's a little nervous or apprehensive on holding a tarantula or an insect for that matter, I'll be talking to them the whole time, staying in their mind. So I'll be telling them, all right, now when this insect comes onto your hand, it's going to tickle a little bit. And as I'm talking, I'm going to be placing it. And then as soon as it's on their hand, they're thinking, oh my goodness, it's on my hand. So you start to encourage them and tell them, look, Honestly, you're doing it just like a professional now. You're so brave. Good job. And it works every time, I'll tell you. <laughs> That's awesome. Maybe I will eventually, I'm not saying I will, but maybe I'll eventually work up the courage to do just that. And uh, I hope to see that day come one day. Uh, we'll get you there, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Till next time, Chris. Thank you for having me very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sue Podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com. That's S-O-O podcast.com.